Hi, Soma. Howdy, howdy. Good to see you guys. Yes, we are now entering uh, the third part of our year of living in the story. So looking at 1 Corinthians for the rest of the year and actually on into next year. So it's going to be more than a year of living in the story. It's going to be a year and a bit. Uh, couldn't fit it all in this year. And uh, so 1 Corinthians is going to be our main teaching for the year. And uh, I recommend you study 1 Corinthians in your gospel community or DNA group. And I'll provide questions for that. 1 Corinthians is Paul's first long letter. He wrote a couple of shorter letters to the Galatians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But now he writes his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, and Paul is in a leisurely mood, as we'll see. He's going from topic to topic, issue to issue. There's the question of church unity, which we're looking at today. The question of leadership styles, uh, the meaning of power and wisdom, the centrality of the cross. There are specific issues like sexual ethics, lawsuits, marriage, food, Christian freedom. There's how we gather as Christians. Uh, there's stuff on spiritual gifts. Uh, in the middle of it all, there's love. <laughs> and in the middle of it all, there is the resurrection hope that we have. Uh, so lots and lots of really juicy, wonderful stuff to dig into in this series, which will take us, I don't know, 30 plus weeks on to Easter next year. Wow. So get ready. Okay. Why is Paul writing this letter? Paul ha has been in Corinth for a couple of years and then traveled to Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is on the opposite side of the Aegean Sea to Corinth, not far as the seagull flies. <laughs> and after those two years that Paul had in Corinth, he knows these people really well and they know him. And he's writing because two things have happened. One is Chloe and her associates came from Corinth and visited Paul in Ephesus and told him about the joys and the sorrows of what's happening in the church in Corinth. And secondly, some of the Corinthians have written to Paul asking specific questions and issues. Hey, Paul, you didn't teach us about this or not very much. What do we do on this issue and that issue and the other? And so Paul now in Ephesus is writing back to say, well, this and that and the other. He does refer to an earlier letter that he has written to them, but we don't have that letter. It's lost to us. The situation in Corinth is quite different from the situation of some of Paul's other churches for one very important reason. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, we read that some people in Corinth tried to bring a charge against Paul, a case in front of the Roman governor Gallio, the proconsul of Archaea, which is, in, which is southern Greece, where Corinth is. And the people who brought this case against Paul were Jews and they said what this man Paul is teaching is a form of worship that is illegal in the Roman Empire. But Gallio was having nothing of it. He said, as far as I can see, this is just a, an internal dispute between you Jews and I don't want to have anything to do with this. In other words, Christianity is legal as far as Gallio is concerned. And that caused trouble, but it meant that in southern Greece, Christianity was free 
to flourish and uh, develop because the Romans allowed Christians to, to worship in their own way. But if the Christians in southern Greece were free to worship in their own way, that's not the case in other parts of the Greco-Roman world where Christians are regarded as dangerous, as illegal, as people to persecute or certainly to treat with great suspicion and hostility. So there's this unique situation in Corinth where the church is free. They're free, which means the pressure is off actually, uh, which means they can indulge in personality cults, in different styles of morality, without needing to bother with how we're going to hold together as a church in the face of persecution. So a situation not unlike the church today. Freedom can breed complacency. And Corinth is a proud city. It's in Greece, but it's a Roman colony. And they're proud of their Greek heritage as well as their Roman heritage. And Corinth is on an isthmus between two gulfs. Um, and it looks westward to Rome and eastward to the Aegean Sea. This is Corinth as it was. Pretty amazing city. All right, let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and we'll just leave that slide up for you guys to just really orientate to what kind of place this was. Right from the start, we see Paul's love for the Corinthians. And uh, there's a sense that he's looking across the Aegean Sea with fondness to this, this Corinthian church and saying, hey, these are my friends. I love them and I think they love me. And if there are problems to sort out, at least we can do that in the context of love. So he addresses them, verse 3, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Paul looks back to his time when he first walked into Corinth and started to tell people about Jesus. And he found the grace of God was at work. As he announced Jesus, the crucified Messiah, as he says later in this chapter, he found that people were coming to faith and a church was established. And he knew this was a sign that the living God was at work. And he says, verse 5, For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. <clears throat> Paul preaching the good news of Jesus in Corinth was a bit like somebody planting seeds in a garden, wondering whether they will take root. And Paul is delighted that the seed of the gospel did take root in Corinth and a new community of Jesus sprang up and it's got many plants and different colours and different giftings. <clears throat> Paul says the good news of Jesus took root among you and as a result, verse 7, therefore you don't lack any spiritual gift. They had all the gifts you could imagine and more and as we'll see in 1 Corinthians, that was going to cause some problems. As you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed, <clears throat> he will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless 
on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul frames his letter by looking back to what has happened in Christ by the power of the Spirit um, through the gospel to this community. And, and he looks forward to what will happen on the day Jesus returns. That when we become Christians, God sees us as in Christ. He sees us as people defined by the gospel, by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and by the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And so in God's sight, we are blameless if we are in Christ. We've already been forgiven. We are God's children. But then one day, in the Lord and by the Spirit, the people that the gospel has declared us to be, um, we will become finally and fully. We will be blameless on that day. And God will keep us firm until then. So this is Paul beginning to talk about what does it mean to live in the story of God as a church. We look back to what Jesus has done for us in the past. We look at the present that God is at work in our lives and we look forward to that final day of Jesus' return. Uh, And then Paul concludes this opening section in verse 9. God is faithful who has called you into this fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the things that I'm fascinated by in these opening nine verses is the way that Jesus' name gets mentioned constantly. Nine times in nine verses, Paul is called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. The Corinthian church is sanctified or made holy in Christ Jesus. They're the people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and grace and peace comes to them from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and so on and so on. Paul is aware that the name of Jesus carries power and authority. Uh, It isn't the bullying power that they're experiencing in the Roman Empire. Jesus is the Messiah, he's the King, but he's redefined notions of authority and kingship around himself and his cross. And that's going to be the foundation of everything that we'll see in 1 Corinthians. And then in verses 10 to 17, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to be united in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to look at verses 10 to 17 which is the section I want to focus on this morning. Paul appeals for unity in the face of division. This is where he's going to go at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. He wants them to be perfectly united. Now the problem with the word unity is it's really lame and amorphous. It means different things to different people. I mean, everybody likes unity. Should we be unified? Yes, definitely. But what is unity? Just briefly, 
Let's start with what unity is not. Unity is not uniformity, right? Unity is not homogenous groupings of Christians, um, androids for Jesus or something. No, we don't have to all be the same. Secondly, unity is not tolerance. This needs to be said. Keep in mind that there are two different understandings of tolerance. There's the historic understanding of tolerance and there is the current understanding of tolerance. The historic understanding of tolerance is, listen, there is a right and there is a wrong. We don't agree on something. Let's agree to disagree in love. And let's not kill each other and go to war over that disagreement. I tolerate you, meaning I'm not going to murder you on the battlefield. That's historic tolerance. Today, the word tolerance means there is no right or wrong or absolute truth. How dare you say my opinion is wrong? How dare you say my lifestyle, how I'm living, is wrong? You're a bigot. And if somebody stands up for truth, right, wrong or clarity, that's fast becoming a hate crime in Western culture. But that understanding of tolerance is absolutely illogical. It's like that bumper sticker, we will not tolerate intolerance. <laughs> um, I don't care what your understanding of the world is, um, that is just silly, right? Uh, that's a self-defeating argument. Uh, you don't have to have a PhD in philosophy to understand that's crazy. No offence, I hope that's not on your, the back of your car. <laughs> we will not tolerate intolerance. Um, Forgive me for mocking you if it is, uh, but, but that's crazy. And the point is that that is not Paul's understanding of unity. What Paul means by unity is, to Paul, unity is when a grouping of Christians call the church from a diversity of backgrounds and different walks of life, have Jesus in common and come together around the gospel and the mission of Jesus. That's what Paul means. And the Corinthian church is becoming disunified on several levels. Because, verse 11, Paul has been told by Chloe's people, we assume Chloe and her household or associates have been travelling, and they've come to Paul in Ephesus and said, we're doing fine on this, and we're having a great time on that, and we're seeing God at work, but it's really difficult because since you left Paul, other teachers have come, and some people are now taking sides, saying, verse 12, oh, I always preferred Paul, or no, I like this man, Apollos. He's a great teacher. Can't he preach? My goodness. And then some people are saying, well, we've had Peter, or Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, and he obviously was a close friend of Jesus. We really like him. <laughs> and so they're playing personality cults. I'm Paul's man. I'm with Apollos. <laughs> or, no, I'm with Cephas. And there's even some saying, oh, a plague on all of that. We are with the Messiah. We are Christ men which perhaps is another way of saying we're the real thing they're not. 
<laughs> or it's a way of putting Jesus alongside of Paul and Apollos and Cephas as just another teacher. What's going on here? Well, there's a bit of backstory we need to understand in order to make sense of verse 12. <laughs> or, and in fact, the whole of 1 Corinthians. There was a movement kind of exploding in Paul's day in the first century Greco-Roman culture called sophistry. Based on the Greek word Sophia, translated wisdom in English. But don't think wisdom as in Jewish wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Sophia was more about enlightenment and philosophy and rhetoric and all of that. And the head of this movement were teachers called sophists. And sophists were famous all over the empire for being philosophers slash intellectuals slash orators and rhetoricians and public speakers and entertainment. Sophists would travel all over the ancient Mediterranean world, show up at a city like Corinth, go to the centre of the city where there was a large outdoor amphitheatre called a forum, and the entire city would show up to hear this sophist speak. And he would speak on philosophy or ethics or politics or the gods. And in large churches like Corinth, tens of thousands of people would sit and listen to these sophists. Because sophistry was the entertainment of the masses in Paul's day. Like today, we're obsessed with celebrities and gurus, right? Same idea. Uh, with the sophists, people are obsessed with sophistry and entertainment. And there are a couple of things we need to know about the sophists to make sense of this story. One, all sophists had disciples or followers. Two, there was fierce infighting and competition between the sophists in every city. Because sophistry was a lucrative money-making business. Don't picture like philosophers in search of the truth wandering around. Picture entrepreneurs, celebrities, uh, uh, trying to get ahead and make money. And there's a lot of infighting because it's about money. Because Greek rhetoric, which was the art of speaking well, was essential for success in the Greco-Roman world. And when a sophist shows up in a town, and if he's a good rhetorician and speaker, all the wealthy fathers or heads of households like Chloe would hire him to train their sons and daughters in Greek rhetoric so that they could be successful in life. So there was lots of money to be made and therefore lots of competition between sophists. Thirdly, we need to understand if you were a disciple or follower of your teacher, your sophist, your duty inside Corinthian culture was to honour your sophist by insulting and degrading all the other ones in town. We have records, true story, records of sophists and their disciples yelling and shouting at and over one another in front of all the different temples. We have records of one sophist 
uh, in Corinth around the same time that Paul writes his letter. One sophist who is murdered by the disciples of another sophist. This happened at the same time that Paul is writing. There was fierce infighting and bickering and competition, not only between the teachers, but between the disciples of the sophists. And as we read on in 1 and 2 Corinthians, it becomes clear that the church in Corinth was enamoured with sophistry and rhetoric and entertainment and culture, and they're getting sucked in. And they're starting to treat the church leaders, the preachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, whoever, like sophists. And they're breaking into tribes. And they're saying, listen, I follow Paul. I'm Paul's disciple. Or I'm a disciple of Apollos. And like the Corinthian culture, um, they were starting to fight by insulting one another's groups and, and breaking apart and fracturing at the seams. And our culture is a lot like the culture in Corinth, you'd have to say. We live in a consumeristic, celebrity-obsessed, entertainment-orientated, personality-driven culture, right? And that absolutely bleeds over into the church. We have tribes in the church today. In fact, it's almost worse today because of modern technology. Now we have the best, most brilliant, educated preachers and teachers one click away. Videos, podcasts, blogs, everything at our fingertips. And celebrity preachers and teachers and authors and activists and artists. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's easy for us to start sinking into tribalism. It's really easy to say, I follow him, I follow her, I'm this, I'm that, and start defining ourselves as a follower of that man or that movement rather than a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul's answer is brisk, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Are you taking a pair of scissors and cutting apart the body of Christ. And then the sharp challenge, verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? Do you know, in the early Reformation in the 16th century, when Martin Luther was doing his thing in Germany and Zwingli doing his thing in Switzerland and the English reformers like Tyndale were doing their thing back in the UK and then a bit later Calvin was doing his thing in Geneva, People around Europe started to say, I'm a, a Luther man, I'm a Calvin man. And some of the reformers saw the danger of that right from the start and said, do you know what? Neither Calvin nor Luther was crucified for you. It's Jesus that matters. Um, we've got to get back to him. And I'm sure Luther and Calvin would have said, absolutely, right on. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. And people around Europe started to say, yes, we need to get back to Jesus, the Messiah. And Paul says, not only was Paul not crucified for you, what a crazy idea, 
But you were baptized, but but were you baptized in the name of Paul? No way. <laughs> you were baptized in the name of Jesus the Messiah, not in my name. This is not my kingdom. Paul says later in chapter 3, I and Apollos are merely servants. I planted, Apollos watered, but Jesus is everything. He is the foundation we are building on. What matters is that you are baptised in the name of Jesus. And he says, verse 14, I'm grateful I didn't baptise many of you. Other people were doing that. I was preaching the gospel. I was announcing Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Oh, by the way, I did baptise Crispus and Gaius. And then I suspect while Paul is dictating the letter, Stephanus and other people were saying, hey, Paul, don't you remember you baptised us too? Oh, yes, he said, I did. I did baptise Stephanus and his household, but I don't know if I baptised anyone else. And this is the point. He says, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, don't misinterpret the text here. Paul is not saying that eloquence in sermons is bad or that everything in church should be boring. That's not the point he's making. The point Paul is making is, listen, I'm not coming to you like one of those sophists. I'm not like all the philosophers and eloquent speakers out in the forum. I'm coming to you as a missionary to preach the gospel. I'm not here to preach to you or speak to you sophistry, wisdom, eloquence, rhetoric, which was famous for being more about style than about content, more about dazzling the crowd with rhetoric than about actual learning and teaching and truth. Paul's like, listen, I'm not coming to you with empty shallow sophistry. <laughs> I'm coming to you with the gospel. And the gospel is marked by power, weight, oomph, you know, substance, reality. The gospel is the real power and the real wisdom in the world, he'll go on to say, as we'll see next week. Um, the gospel is the real, true story of God and the world. I'm not a sophist. I'm a missionary. And I'm not preaching philosophy and empty Sophia. I'm preaching the cross of Christ. Because that is what it is all about. Now, putting all this together, I think when we come to a text like this, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17... The danger is we hear the church is divided, don't be divided. <laughs> we should all be united, right? Um, and that's true. Everyone agrees with that. No one says we shouldn't be united. You know, no one would say that. No one says we should be divided. We're all on the same page. Yes, we want unity. But that's easier said than done. It's one thing to say we should be united. It's another thing to stay united in a culture marked by fierce individualism. 
We're hyper-individualistic. Be yourself. Choose your own path. No one has the right to tell you how to live. How do we stay unified in that culture? We live in a consumeristic culture. How do we not come to church like consumers, but as brothers and sisters, as co-labourers in the gospel, as fellow missionaries? We live in a celebrity-obsessed culture. How do we not get obsessed with personalities, but stay focused on Jesus? It's harder than it sounds. Now, I think factions is not a problem here for us in Soma right now. I think tribalism is alive and well in the wider church. I think individualism is dangerous and smacks of arrogance, pride and isolation and many things that God does not want for us as the church. But I think for the most part, we are a united church. God's spirit is moving and you are an amazing, warm community of love. And I don't think this is a problem with us here, but it could become so. And I think Paul models for us how we can stay united. It's one thing to say, hey, be united. It's a whole other thing to actually live our unity. I think Paul models for us in his life and in the text here the way to be a healthy, unified church. And it's to stay prayerfully centred on Jesus and the cross. And we saw Paul opens his letter by using Jesus' name nine times in nine verses. And then verse 10 he says, I appeal to you brothers and sisters in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is obsessed by Jesus. Paul is centred on Jesus. Jesus dominates his every sentence, his every paragraph, his life, his prayers. And when he gets to the end, he says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He centred on Jesus and Jesus' cross. He centred on the gospel. And in the church, there are central core issues. Jesus, the gospel, the cross, faith, obedience to Jesus as Lord. If you don't buy into that, you're not a Christian. But everything else orbits around that. So there's this core that we are being asked to agree on here. Be of the same mind. Agree together on this. Jesus, the cross, the gospel, faith, mission, all these core issues. And Paul will teach us what they are in his letter. Where are the boundaries between the core issues and the secondary issues? There are side issues on the margins. Things like theology, in some cases, uh, philosophy, culture, methodology. These are, these are really important things. Last things, uh, gender roles, complementarianism, self-complementarianism, egalitarianism, you know, <laughs> openness versus sovereignty, all sorts of different issues 
that the church is dividing on. Uh, but these are side issues and these are not to be issues we divide on. And it's healthy to talk about side issues in a loving, gracious way with our Bibles open, not trying to prove our position out of loyalty to a tradition or a denomination or a leader or an author, but simply coming together over God's word, praying that God would reveal himself to us as we dig into scripture together. The scriptures are the ultimate authority over us. That's part of the core. The scriptures are the authority. And we're to be loyal, not to a tradition per se, but to these scriptures. Um, And to God, through his spirit, who speaks to us through the scriptures. It's healthy to have intelligent, thinking, open, Bible-believing conversations about side issues. But the problem is there's no way we're all across the world, all Christians, are going to agree about side issues. There's no way we're going to get thousands of people to agree on the millennium or agree on gender roles or agree on the volume of music. (laughs) People are not going to agree. And if that becomes the focus we're going to be divided. When churches get focused on the side issues, the marginal issues, important things, but not central, that's when churches start falling apart. We need to stay focused on Jesus and the gospel. It's so easy to get off track. (laughs) Just think about your own life. How easy is it to drift away from Jesus and the gospel and the mission of the gospel and sidetracked into side issues which become your hobby horse or become your passion rather than Jesus, the gospel and his calling and mission. (laughs) Well, if we get sidetracked off of this main deal, disunity will come into our church. For the Corinthians, what was pulling them away from the centre was sophistry, leaders in the church, entertainment, who baptised who, preaching styles, and a whole range of issues Paul will look at. But none of those things are bad per se, but but we're pulling the Corinthians away from Jesus. What is pulling you away from the centre of church, Jesus and the gospel and his mission? Anything pulling you away. Don't lose your centre of gravity. The centre is Jesus, the cross and the gospel. Stay unified around Jesus and the cross. And I'll just close with a little thought. There is a thing called liberal theology and churches with liberal theology who don't robustly believe in the gospel or in the authority of scripture. And Christians, we will see, increasingly will leave very gospel-centred, very serious about the gospel churches and find, in some ways, an easier time in more liberal churches, which are more permissive on many issues. Um, But I want to say to you, 
study that because liberal churches like that, liberal theology churches, don't hold together. When you lose a robust centering uh, and belief in and pursuit of Jesus in the gospel, those churches just fade away. And, we, and this has been well documented. If you want to read some good stuff on this, um, Alicia Childers is, has written recently on this whole thing that liberal churches tend to be a stepping stone away from faith entirely and a halfway house, as it were. It's only churches with a robust understanding of the authority of the scriptures and centering their life together on the gospel believed and the gospel lived. Only they are the ones that are growing and unified. Let's stay that kind of church. Amen.